You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast was created by the CBLDF as part of our ongoing educational program. In this episode, CBLDF Executive Director Charles Brownstein travels to the United Kingdom. While there, he visits page 45 in Nottingham and the Cartoon Museum in London. For more information about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, please visit cbldf.org. And if you have any questions or comments about this particular podcast, feel free to write us at info at cbldf.org. We encourage you to tell a friend if you like what we're doing here and uh, give us a rating on iTunes. Anything to help let people know that we are on the air and broadcasting here. So here is Executive Director Charles Brownstein in Nottingham, UK. Uh, This is Charles Brownstein, the Executive Director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and I'm in page 45 in Nottingham in the UK, and I'm speaking to... Stephen Holland. Uh, And Stephen is the founder... I'm one of the co-creators 20 years ago of page 45. I'm one of the co-managers now. And, Stephen, we're talking about challenges facing comics in the UK, whether there's any sorts of censorship uh, issues uh, in the stores, and uh, specifically if there's any censorship issues happening in schools and libraries regarding comics. Very little indeed. When you're dealing with school libraries, you have to be careful about which school libraries you're dealing with, not just the age range either. There is uh, a general difference between what school libraries find acceptable in the country to what they find in the city. Uh, tends to be a lot uh, broader-minded uh, in the city than in the countryside. Uh, and so whenever school libraries come in, we, we get a feel for exactly what their tolerance levels are. You have to ask terrible questions like, OK, there's a little bit of gay content in Scott Pilgrim, the main character's, well, main character's gay, do you care? That, so far, no one has given a damn about that, which is fantastic. But obviously in terms of... What sort of sex is discussed in what sort of age levels? You know, I even have to warn people um, that, just responsibly, that there is menstruation discussed in Hope Larson's Chiggers. It's just being responsible. They then know what there is, and they can act accordingly for the books. And you ask on a wider level, 20 years ago it was very different. Uh, When we first opened, we were importing Roberta Gregory's Naughty Bits, direct from Fantagraphics, as they come from British customers. And I have, before now, I think it was about 18 years ago, they seized a whole batch of naughty bits and they burned them. Mm -hmm. So let's be clear, the people who were controlling our borders 18 years ago were the people we fought against in the last world war. They burned books. And they also threatened us with jail. Now, I know you have a problem with that in the States, but you have it much, much worse than we do. I can't think of any seizure in the last 15 years. I could be wrong, but I can't think of any seizure at all in the last 15 years. There was a brief issue with Black Kiss last year. Oh, yes. Diamond refused to import it to the UK. And that's fine. I'm not... You know, there are, there's a lot of stuff that we will import, like mm-hmm. a lot of Yowie um, mm-hmm. using various distributors. Not necessarily Diamond, they're pretty good at what they do sell now. There are things I will risk my store for. It doesn't seem to be an issue over here, but the things I would. Black Kiss isn't one of them. Are there still issues... It sounds like there are no issues with customs anymore. No, not that I'm aware of. What changed? Well, that's the thing. Um, it wasn't any law necessarily because it was quite whimsical. It was quite capricious. Um, most customs officers, certainly in those days, were male. And my guess is what was seized depending on whether they got a shag out of their missus the night before. That capricious. Mm-hmm. And that malicious as well. 
just taking it out on comics because they could. I just don't think that's an issue anymore. We've seen that issue uh, very prominently with Canada Customs over the last 10 years. Little Sisters famously fought uh, yes. in, 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 in an instance about gay content. Yes. And could not get heard by the Canada Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some of these issues happen in the States as well. Um, there was a case where a Peter Cooper comics fa uh, satirizing George Bush, as Richie Bush, was seized in South Carolina. We shut that down promptly. Well done. Um, but, you know, the, the real danger now is... Um, for readers that have comics, you know, manga on their iPads going to different countries and being accused of possessing child pornography for what is just artwork that the customs agents don't understand. So it is still very capricious. And I, I wouldn't take it for granted in this country either. Um, someone, you know, some sort of politician, particularly with the rise of parties like UKIP, could decide to just take advantage and take a pop shot. I don't take it for granted, um, but I don't see any sign of it right now. Mm -hmm. That's good. I mean, they're opportunists, you know, in America. They're, they're basically opportunists. Yes, that's right. Just trying to get a headline and trying to appear as if they have the moral high ground when they can't even read. They're illiterate. Yeah, that's right. Um, tell me about the interest and appetite for comics in the education space here in the UK. Uh, growing exponentially. I mean, I was actually headhunted two years ago by the Windsor School Library Conferences to actually go and do show-and-tells. I didn't ask, can I go and do that? I was headhunted by the organisers saying, can you come in and do some show-and-tells uh, for the libraries? Uh, there seems to be a great appetite, and I couldn't see a single disinterested party around those tables. Uh, I've also been asked already this year to address the Staffordshire branch in their annual general meeting, and I'll do the same thing, taking 60 graphic novels put them in front of the librarians and let them have a feel for the actual graphic novels, flick through themselves. And each time we do a show, like, show and tell like this, it's dictated by what they appear to be interested, what questions come back from them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think also we, uh, the change over the last 20 years is we've got parents on our sides, we've got teachers on our sides because they are so keen on getting their children reading. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years old, uh, comics were seen as a poor man's prose. Um, now, particularly in some areas, male literacy is so down in the UK that teachers are desperate for them to read anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we supply a lot of school libraries. Um, school librarians come in, they don't necessarily know what to expect from graphic novels. We show them around the shop. We can also tell them what has gone to other schools, but not only that, from the feedback, what was actually taken out when it was brought into schools by the kids. Uh, we also are frontline, unlike, say, I don't know, publishers or book mm -hmm. distributors. We're on the front line, so we know what children are prepared to spend their own money on, taking away themselves from the shop. We know what sells. Mm -hmm. If they're going to spend their own money on it, they're sure going to take it off the shelves for free Absolutely. at a library. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a headmaster who'd started this literacy program using our help. Uh, manga is always very good at a beginning with yes, the most so. literate because it has an anime recognition factor. The anime is shown on TV. Re recognition factor, getting people to start reading in the first place should not be underestimated. And he rang up uh, a couple of weeks after the graphic novels arrived and he thanked me because his children were fighting. They were fighting over the graphic novels. Now, we frequently in the States um, help manage challenges to comics and graphic novels on every level. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, Bone being challenged in Minnesota because, shockingly, it showed adults having a cigar and a beer in a tavern, to the most recent uh, issues of uh, Persepolis in the Chicago I Public Schools that. being banned, and uh, Fun Home, you know, the object of controversy right now. Are there 
similar um, challenges or bans uh, here that you're aware of? I've not seen a single one. And what's the process? Is there in the states there's a, a, cha- a process um, by which somebody can challenge a book and say I object to it being in the library at all. I object to where it's placed. And there's a hearing process that it goes through. And at the end of that hearing, the book is either retained, reshelved, or uh, or banned. Is there any any similar kind of process here that you're aware of? I'm not aware of one. What would probably happen is someone would come in and whisper very quietly, <laughs> "Is that book okay?" Mm-hmm. That's it. Honestly, mm-hmm. we, we whisper. Are there um, what are the what are the frequently asked questions that you get on your show and tells regarding comics and their content? Hmm. Um, uh, what questions? Um, uh, well, healthily, we don't get asked: Are there any more stuff for girls? Are there any more stuff for boys? There's a movement in this country at the moment not to segregate graphic novels. Uh, and books of any sort or anything, and I think it's absolutely healthy. Um, I can tell you that at this store, for example, the readership of Amulet, uh, which stars a young lady, there's a younger brother, but he's very much a minor character, has a 50 50 male female readership, and parents um, hungrily snap it up for their kids as well. So there's that movement here. I rarely get asked by school librarians, do you have any? more stuff for girls or for boys because as you can see from the massive display there we have plenty for everyone of all tastes we don't segregate into genders ourselves either what do we get asked most by school librarians you caught me on the hot there uh, Charles um, do you have any more stuff like this do you have any more stuff like that we all take things of all age ranges from uh, we adore Andy Watson this, in this country his Gone Girl is just brilliant but right up to Persepolis, because mm-hmm. you've got all age ranges of libraries as well. And not only that, but there's no reason why you shouldn't put Persepolis in a 12, 13-year-old's library. Absolutely. Um, if, because you don't, you want to always challenge them. You don't want to go, oh, you'll only like this. You'll only that. Don't, you, that's above their reading level. Don't believe in that at all. Um, uh, how soon can you deliver, is one of the questions. Can I come and see for myself? Right. And they will even travel from as far as the south of, of England to make a, a day trip up here just to see for themselves because seeing is believing. It's, it's very much a, a, a medium that benefits mm-hmm. from flicking through the books yourselves. Or I will travel to them. Can't do individual schools, I'm afraid. Can't do individual libraries because I've got a bookshop to run. But if I can get something like, I don't know, the Staffordshire Annual General Meeting where there's going to be between a dozen and 20 school librarians, that is so worth my while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year, I'm taking the shop, basically, up to the Lakes International Comic Art Festival in Kendall. Uh, England has finally got its own Angoulême. Last year was its inaugural year. Uh, this year is its second year. And we couldn't make it the first year because we'd already signed on to a great big Dunford Grado book launch same weekend. But this year, I've been planning with Julie Tate, its director, I've been planning for about a year now, um, and we're going to take page 45 up there. We've got the entire room, oh, the wow. Georgian room. Um, we've got our own creators. We've got people like uh, Sarah McIntyre, Liz Lunny, Glyn Dillon, Jack Teagle, uh, Fumio Mbata, uh, and um, Joe Dicci and Joe List. We've got our own creators. We've got our own books. We've got an entire room in the clock tower. And not only that, throughout the day, I'll be giving show and tells to the general public. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to do a ticketed tour. Our stuff will be free, getting into our room is free, but I will also be doing a ticking talk called How to Sell Comics. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I want to go to Lakes, uh, if not this year, next year. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I can't wait. I just absolutely can't wait. I've seen the town Kendall, and it's set in such a gorgeous, gorgeous mm-hmm. town. 
and the locals seem enthusiastic. People come into it just they hear about the festival, and because it's not indoors, I think it's so important. It's not just indoors; it's out on the street. It's taking comics out of the bedsit mm-hmm. and into the wider population. Mm-hmm. Last library question: um, You're talking a lot about the diversity of the books on the on the kids' shelves, sure. and um, that there's a big appetite for that. What about uh, older teen and adult? Is that kind of collecting <coughs> happening on the library level in the UK yet? Uh, older teen, adult, yeah. I mean, we sell, we, we 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 serve the general population libraries as well. That's that's that was happening in a way long before mm-hmm. specifically school libraries were necessarily getting mm-hmm. into. I remember our first year, we had several big mm-hmm. uh, Rutland Library joined joined in, and I think they launched in with something like nine thousand quid, which was lovely. Um, so we've never had a problem with that. We also serve uh, prison libraries, mm-hmm. which have a, a quite in, it's quite interesting what prison librarians. Uh, want for their uh, inmates. Uh, some of them try to sedate their inmates with uh, Marvel Adventures and Simpsons. Other them, others, no, they're buying criminal. They're buying in criminal. They know what they're... Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what? They're reading. Again, literacy is important. Um, get people back to work once they've, they've served their time. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. All right. That's, that's pretty much all I um, got, Charles. It's so nice to see you there. No, no. I got one. Actually, I do have one more. What are you excited about that's happening that's local in comics right now in the UK? Well, uh, local as in as in Nottingham, we've got Luke Pearson, mm-hmm. one of our biggest comic creators, lives mm-hmm. locally. And every single time we get a new book, like for example, Hild and the Black Hound has just come out from Flying Eye Press. He mm-hmm. comes in and he sketches in. Oh, those are beautiful. Those are beautiful. Uh, all of them are completely different as well. Just gorgeous. Those are beautiful. Um, so, also. Uh, by all means, I'll just pop that down there as well. There you go. Brilliant. Um, Philippa Rice, who just happens to be his girlfriend, um, has also got... We, also, we cherish the local people. They're up, yeah. up in the front here, as you can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she has a series um, uh, in which one. Colin and Pauline appear. This one's very much like a, a British kids writer stroke filmmaker called Oliver Postcase, who's uh-huh. famous in... 40-odd years ago for doing things like clangers. Similarly, these, they come alive and they come out of their letterbox and, strange enough, page 45 appears on page 45. <laughs> That's really so cool. they're both local. Uh, well, she's um, nominated, I think, for an Ignatz Award with that last year. Yes, yeah, I've seen this um, before. Okay. Well, thank you for indulging my questions okay. uh, for this. I heard a birdie sing so sweet. And from page 45, we... Take the trek over to the Cartoon Museum. In here, and uh, you were just telling me about the. Uh, I guess could you give me a brief overview of the museum and its goals? Okay, well the museum's been in this current location um, since 2006. Mm-hmm. We're right in the centre of London, easy to find, and it's basically um, three large galleries of original art from cartoons and comics from the last few hundred years, right up to the present day. Brilliant. Um, you were just showing me the library, which yeah, is impressive. Yeah, first port of call. Once you come through our lovely shop, we have the reference library that serious students and scholars can book time to use our reference books, many of which are long out of print, some are quite rare, mm-hmm. so we can't just let people wander in and out, else they might wander off with a book. Right. But, uh, but people, serious students can book time to sit in here and uh, do their research, and, and plenty of them do. Excellent. All right, let's uh, take a look. Okay, then this is uh, the, as the entrance, the foyer really of the museum is what we call the Blue Room, mm-hmm. which is just a nice little selection of cartoons from hither and yon. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we have our, 
uh, bespoke mural that was drawn right before we opened. The paint was drawing on the day we opened uh, by a lot of famous uh, British cartoonists, including Steve Bell on Tennyson, and for the leading lights. And when did you open? Uh, February 2006. Okay. Pre previously, that we've had other premises, mm -hmm. but nothing as kind of grand as this. We were just shunted into the corner of an office building or something like that. Right. So when we had the opportunity to, uh, to move here and make this place into what you see before you now, uh, that's when really when we came to life, I suppose. And the pieces that I'm seeing on the wall, are these permanent collection? Uh, some, some are just on temporary loan, some are uh -huh. actually part of the permanent collection. Um, we have a number of collectors donate work to us, or artists themselves. Um, but also, some collectors are happy for us to have it for a couple of years, but then they want it back. Right, right. Yeah, which is fair. Right. This is excellent. Yeah, I mean, some of it is, you know, real classic old stuff, and also some quite up to the minute, mm -hmm. you know, recent uh, cartoonists from mag magazines, newspapers, and as you'll see later, yeah, from comic books. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, okay, shall we? Yeah. Do you mind if I take pictures here afterwards? Uh, so you, you take general views. General views, exactly. Just exactly. Zoom in on one else, we get beaten up. Not a problem. Uh, so, yeah, so currently, um, temporary exhibition takes over most of the ground floor. As you can see, it's Spitting Image, mm -hmm. which was a hugely successful satirical TV show in Britain in the 80s and 90s, um, using latex puppets based on caricatures of politicians and famous folk of the day. It was very scathing, it was very biting, it was genuinely very funny. Fondly remembered, as you can see from the people chuckling at the clips mm -hmm. that we have. So what we have is all the original artwork uh, on display, the caricatures of the, the great and the good and the not so good. And what remains of the few uh, remaining puppets, such as a life-size Margaret Thatcher. Excellent. Down there we have the Queen and Princess Diana. And uh, a little cabinet of fools. Uh, over there, and this, this has been one of our most successful exhibitions for some time. How long has this been? Uh, this has just been on for about three weeks now. And it closes? Uh, the middle of June. Middle of June. Um, actually, this brings up, uh, Spitting Image brings up the tradition of British satire and cartooning, uh, which is, I'm sure, run aground with censorship concerns, um, you know, over that history. Are there any um, particular things you think Americans may not be uh, most aware of in terms of censorship or um, free speech issues concerning British cartooning that uh, would be interesting to um, introduce? Well, I mean, you know, back, at, back in those days, I think uh, cartoonists and satirists felt they had a much freer reign. Um, you know, most politicians that found themselves on the show kind of took it in, in good faith, and mm -hmm. some of them even wanted to buy their puppets. Um, I think they, you know, it was more tolerant in those days. I think as time has moved on, I mean, we are talking now like 30 years later, um, perhaps now people might be more worried about, about giving offence mm -hmm. or taking offence, mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to uh, perhaps... Um, Mickey taking of certain cultural groups. Mm -hmm. uh, there might again be risks. I mean, we have a, an Osama bin Laden puppet in the case there. Mm -hmm. um, that might have been a bit more of a worry these days if uh, that was to be done then. But back then, he was a popular character in the show as a, you know, an ally of America, ironically enough. So, uh, no, I mean, I mean, we have had a, you know, to label uh, outside that there are some risque. Uh, Mm -hmm. elements to the exhibition because um, you do get families with children coming in and things like that but as a general thing in terms of political censorship or anything like that I think uh, yeah, we're still a fairly tolerant mm -hmm. bunch mm -hmm. Excellent uh, Do you mind if we 
Let's take a look at it. That's the most recent piece, which has, you know, our current crop of fools. Uh, you got what? A very jowly Gordon Brown. Right. Cameron and Clegg. And this guy's Peter Mandelson, who was the advisor, to a special advisor to the Labour government. Uh, always working away in the background. Line work is marvellous. It is. I mean, it is just absolutely stunning. I mean, it's, I think, probably the best caricatures I've ever seen. Oh, these are great. Aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, there'll be a few people you might not recognise, like stars of British TV. Right. Um, but most of them, like, you know, world leaders of the day. Right. Wow, these are really cool. Richard Branson, who runs Virgin Airlines right. and all that, you'd know him. This guy, Kenneth Baker, is actually uh, one of the trustees of this museum. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, although they, they mocked him hideously, he was a part of Margaret Thatcher's cabinet back in the day, and he was always portrayed as just a slimy slug. <laughs> um, but he, he collects cartoons right. of himself, and he, uh -huh. he, he just thought it was the greatest thing. Uh -huh. Which, I mean, you know, might cast doubts upon his mental and emotional well-being, but... Uh, that makes him a f an advocate for free expression, that's for sure. Well, yeah, you know. Uh, like I say, you know, they all took it in good faith. You'd occasionally hear that somebody perhaps wasn't best pleased with their betrayal, but right. it was seen as bad form. Right. You know, it's... Uh, so, yeah, Girk there, she's still going. These were some stamps that were going to be used. Uh-huh. Um, like commemorative stamps. But... Uh, they decided they weren't going to put the Queen's head on it because um, it might embarrass her or something, so they ended up scrapping the whole thing. But the stamp company actually printed them out. Uh -huh. See, they value zero. Right. But the stamp printing place thought, well, we've done so much work. Right. We'll print some off just right. as souvenirs. Right. And so we have those. Excellent. Excellent. Fake money with a spitting image queen. Outstanding. I'd love to try and sort of yeah, put one of those over the counter in a shop. <laughs> see, see if you know, see if you notice this. Uh, there's another general up there? Yeah, sure. Great. Oh, it's a general view of the fan. Okay. Okay. Did you see that in, I think it's in Hungary, just last week they passed a law saying it's, it's illegal to take any photographs in public that include a member of the public? Uh, had not seen that. Yeah, it's in the news. I mean, I know that people are fussy about those things these days, but they've actually passed That's a interesting. Law. I don't yeah, know like how a, that's going to be enforceable, but... Yeah, it's crazy. So, you can see, I mean, it was how popular it was, but there was a range of related products that uh -huh. came out at the time, you know, ranged from expensive, commemorative mugs and jugs. Thatcher and... That was Neil Kinnock, who was the uh -huh. Labour leader at the time. Every election he would fail dismally to get back into power. The, uh, the, the work with uh, youth that you do, actually, is um, a topic I wanted to unpack on tape. So if you could talk to me a little bit about the comics classroom and some of the uh, activities that you do uh, in that space, that'd be great. Sure. Well, we can take a look at the teaching space in a minute. But um, I used to run with David Lloyd at a place called the London Cartoon Centre, which was a school for cartoonists in West London. And that was a charity-based thing, and we eventually just ran out of money. By that time, though... Um, the Cartoon Museum in the form that it had at the time, uh, which was basically just a, a, gal a small gallery, um, had got going. So I approached the then 
curator, Paul Gravett, and said, how's about I run you a few cartoon workshops, as it, you know, I enjoy doing it, and there's still call for it, we just don't have the premises. So I started doing every now and then workshops, mm -hmm. and gradually over many years, uh, the place changed, the staff changed, and I, I've been the, the, the constancy here since uh, 1995, running workshops. And it's become a very vital and, and big part of what we do here at the museum. We, we have, you know, schools visiting, you know, two, three times a week, um, doing a range of topics. We have different tutors that can work with them. Um, and, you know, they, it seems to complement a lot of their learning, you know, mm -hmm. that they're doing in other schools. Some schools bring kids here as well because it gives them a... If they're covering a particular topic like the environment or something or uh, road safety... Mm -hmm. then it gives them something they can apply their learning to by creating a, a poster or a little comic book mm -hmm. or something so I can give them the basic skills to do that mm -hmm. and uh, we do get a lot of repeat visitors we run out of school workshops in school holidays and so you get a lot of the young people coming to do these little one-off sessions mm -hmm. and uh, some have, have done very well one young man's only 13 He's, he has his own um, bi-monthly comic out there it's, you can see it in our shop. He was here last week. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, he's become kind of famous mm -hmm. uh, just for being a 13-year-old published cartoonist. Mm -hmm. And plenty of other people have gone on to do other things I've wound up hearing about, maybe not necessarily in comics, but related fields like computer games or right. uh, you know, web design and things like that. And you, you'd showed me this weekend um, some mini-comics, actually, that your students had put together that you had made into uh, professional published samples, which uh, yeah. just seemed like a really empowering thing. Could you well, describe that? Yeah, I mean, basically, when I'm working with, with much younger people, I will take their best efforts, and borrow them, scan them into the computer, and just tidy them up a little bit, colour them, letter them, and then get them printed as booklets so they become genuinely, you know successful published artists and writers and it gives them a great sense of achievement parents love it the libraries I work with love it um, and hopefully it gets them returning and reading and writing you know forevermore sounds awesome alright let's uh, yeah you want to take a look upstairs I would Rob one of our groovy volunteers hey Charles, uh, Charles pleasure to meet you and that's another important thing is that, I mean, without our volunteers, we couldn't run. Sure. Because there's only sure. um... I was only saying that because we stood here. Oh, no, it's true. That's, that's true, though, because we've only got, like, technically two full-time members of staff. Yeah. He's, he's right. The volunteers are keenly important to all of what we do. Yeah, that's good. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was reading in your, your book <coughs> um, when I got home. I mean, I've, I've known about your work since it started, but... But just, I was just surprised that there was still this thing of like you know retailers getting done for showing a mm. tit on a cover or something. It's true. It still occurs. Um, you know, in in recent months, we've dealt with <clears throat> again mostly in the library space. We've dealt with controversy about uh, the graphic novel Fun Home. You know, yeah, attempting yeah. to be banned. Um, we still have to deal with issues for for retailers. It's it's quite a thing. I mean, it's, I mean that doesn't really happen. I mean, I've even, like, some of the libraries I work at, they, a lot of them get their graphic novels from Gosh Comics. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you I've, I've been to Gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, they're great, they know their, their stuff, so they make sure schools get, uh, and libraries get good stuff. But there's still odd things I see occasionally on shelves, like, I, I love the Rockets volume, and I think, there's a pretty uh, interesting sex scene in that, I'm not sure it should be for the mm -hmm. under-10s. 
you know, that my parents and, and, complain. And are they racked in the under 10s area? Well, that's it, because a lot of librarians don't know what they've got. They just go, oh, good, look, comics, they're for children. Mm -hmm. And so you find Ghost World and Love and Rockets in the children's library. Now, on the one hand, I can't really see any harm in that, but certain parents from, you know, certain corners of society might see a big problem with it, and the last thing you want is your library burning down. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, a little bit more care should be taken, an awareness made for librarians and things like that. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that, you know, to, that comics aren't just automatically for kids, which I know the rest of us have been saying for decades. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's still a uh, popular stigma then about comics, you know, here in terms of the public attitudes about the form and its uh, value for readers from all walks of life. I think it's changing. I think it's, it's partly a generational thing as much as anything else. Uh, plus the, the increase in good stuff that's available and that availability is changing it. But when sometimes you're dealing with people who are perhaps, you know, in their 50s and their 60s and, you know, for the, they read comics when they were little and that was that. They have no great knowledge. They're librarians, they're into books in general, but they don't necessarily have much knowledge about comics. These books come in, the graphic novels come in and they just go, oh look, it's Beano books, mm -hmm. you know, and they put them out for the children. And I've occasionally just thought, you know, perhaps it's not a good idea for someone, you know, nine years old to see certain things before they're perhaps ready to understand about it. Sure, and I don't think, uh, you know, certainly no, <coughs> nobody, <coughs> excuse me, uh, certainly that's not a sentiment that uh, people disagree with. You know, it's important for the appropriate, as, as we always say, there's a graphic novel for every reader, but not every graphic novel is right for all readers. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've always said, you know, and, and by the same token, I mean, you know, sometimes when I'm working with adults, you know, it's, they're amazed to discover that there are graphic novels and comics aimed at them. Just, just this last Saturday, I was chatting with a, a, a library woman who's maybe about 60, and uh, for whatever reason she said she, you know, she doesn't read many comics, but she likes some of the films uh, based on comics, and she really liked Constantine. Mm -hmm. she, she might be the only person I've ever met who did. But I said, well, have you ever read the books and uh, the comics? And she was like, well, is that based on a comic? <coughs> Uh, and she thought, I thought it was an old comic. I was like, no, it still comes out. And look, I, I took her to the shelf. Mm -hmm. His comic was called Hellblazer. And that's, uh, you know, I just pulled three volumes off, and she was like, oh, I'm going to read this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, slowly by surely, you chip away at that prejudice. And, and have you encountered, um, you know, bans or challenges in the education or library space, you know, because a comic might not have been suitably racked? Uh, no, not directly. Uh, but I mean, certainly, I mean, this is how much things have changed. When I was a kid at school, I would have comics confiscated by the teacher and returned to me at going home time. And that, you know, and that my mum would be contacted saying, tell Stephen not to bring these comics into school. They're not suitable reading. Um, and yet I'd started off reading by reading comics. You know, I just started trying to piece word balloons together when I was four years old. You know, I had a, when I began school at five, they gave me a, like an easy reader book, mm -hmm. and I just went right through it. And they get, gave me all these reading tests, and I had a reading age of 14 at the age of five, and that was purely through comic books. So that's part of why you know, I'm still adamant mm -hmm. to get kids reading comics, then you'll get them reading newspapers and everything else as well, and hopefully never stop reading comics. Mm -hmm. Do you want to see a banned page of artwork, or something, a comic that got banned? Yes. Book We had our own comic called Action. Clearly, there was no trademark issue right. at the time. <laughs> Maybe it's not like it wasn't international. Anyway, we had a weekly comic back in the 70s called Action, which um, they really went for it. 
mm-hmm. uh, in terms of content and subject matter. So hook jaw was kind of jaws was popular at the time. Right. So they did this violent and bloody strip. Thankfully, perhaps black and white, so it wasn't quite so lurid. And every every week, people would go out to try and catch hook jaw, and they'd just get their arms and legs bitten off. Uh, and there was like police and action type strips based on Clint Eastwood movies, and you'd see a bit of you know. Right, right, all right. that kind of thing. And after, you know, within a year, there was like parents complaining to the news agents saying, you know, my son brought this gory comic home. And this was by IPC, you know, one of the big publishers at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, eventually there was the main distributor uh, at the time, WH Smith, uh, took great exception and they stopped distributing it. And that basically killed the comic. Mm-hmm. But it had, it had been selling well. And they thought, well, how can we get around the whole gory mm-hmm. thing but keep the excitement? 2000 AD. I see. Same people. They just thought, well, if it's robots exploding yeah, right. and it's monsters attacking people, right. then that will be okay. Right. And so they just shifted their thinking to science fiction, which on the, by then in 77 was on the up. Right. And it, and it all works and, you know, and that's still going to this day. But it, it all started with action. Brilliant. And I see um, a pretty interesting Dave Gibbons piece over here on the wall. He's doing uh, Irv Novick in the Liechtenstein style. Yeah. You did, you did a show on this. Uh, oh, no, it, the British Library did a show, right? It was, no, it was at uh, the Orbital Comics Gallery. Orbital, oh, a okay. shop and gallery. Just yes, 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 here. yes. And they've got a, a space nearly as big as this, and they had a much bigger show of it. And it was terrific. Um, and, but it could only be on for a fortnight. Right. So I know the, the guy... Ryan Hughes that curated it, who's a great artist, and I just said, well, how's about mm-hmm. we show some of it mm-hmm. at the museum? And he, he was more than made up. So, I mean, the actual original show was maybe four times as much as you can see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we just chose some, some favorite pieces. And, and uh, yeah, and, it's, and again, it's like I enjoy explaining to people what it's about and what the issues are. Mm-hmm. And I managed to actually dig out a Lichtenstein book something I can show to show people in this book that shows you the original comic frames mm-hmm. and explains you know some of the controversy so at least people can find out a little bit more about why Lichtenstein was a controversial figure I'm sure they've got the Novik thing here somewhere no, there you go See, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. can compare and contrast and I think it's always you know, important that anytime anybody's showing Lichtenstein's work they really should be showing you know, where it came from. Right. But there's also these great commentaries in, in the catalogue, which we've reproduced to go with each artist's work. And, you know, some people were more bothered by what Lichtenstein did than others. Mark Stafford, who's a genius artist, he's kind of one of the artists in residence here. Very talented and a lovely man. But, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of 50 50 with it. He says, you know, I'm a, I'm a goddamn snob. I think Picasso was a better artist than Don Heck. There, I've said it. <laughs> And so what's the guiding um, principles of the uh, comics and graphic novels collection here? Just to uh, basically try and show examples of how comics began in Britain, which mm-hmm. is, so it's kind of chronological. It begins over there, you have an original Ali Sloper front cover page and some contemporaneous things. And then as you sort of move around, you go in, move into like the 30s, the beginnings of comics like film fun and the, the mm-hmm. dandy and the beano and you got eagle patient eagle which was kind of landmarks it was the first full color comic in britain mm-hmm. and uh, cost like three times what a regular comic did so it was only the posh kids that got it mm-hmm. 
but nevertheless it really upped the benchmark mm -hmm. of what could be done in Britain in comics and also I mean that was it produced as a direct response to the American comics that had begun coming into the country which some people at the time wanted to have banned mm -hmm. and thought they were bad for our kids and all that and so the Eagle was set up by the Reverend Marcus Morris uh, to, to provide good wholesome entertainment for Christian children and uh, but because they had the money of the church behind them, presumably, they actually put out just a superior product. Mm -hmm. You're still fondly remembered to this day. Um, so yeah, and then it just basically goes round to you know, slightly more modern times, bit of underground stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally, when we didn't have Mr. Stein, it would just yeah, it would just come right round to the present day. Uh huh. Along the back wall, it goes. That's fine. Nick Abads, this is a friend of mine, and he was over last year. He's great, yeah. Yeah, when Hugo Tate was reissued, and I sort of didn't have to beg him too much, but I said, can we have some of the original art? And we get the odd bit of international stuff, like this is uh, uh, Donald Duck by a Brazilian guy, uh -huh. and uh, he donated a whole story. So uh -huh. we sort of put two pages up at a time now and again. And we, you know, we're always happy to share, it's not, you know, we're not like... Right. Tunnel vision British comics, but it's just that it tends to be the stuff we can easily get hold of. Man, these Charlie's War pages are beautiful. Aren't they? I mean, yeah, we, we did have a mini exhib of Charlie's mm -hmm. War a few years back. Pat Mills came and did a very nice talk about it all. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just wow. mind blowing. And we'll be spotlighting it more in our next exhibition, which is cartoons and comics of and about World War One. So, mm -hmm. you know, it'll be, we'll be having cartoons of the period, right. uh, but also about the period. Right, right. And yeah, and Charles War was great because it was pretty much the first time anyone had done a World War I comic in England. Everyone was obsessed with World War II. So that really went into you know, what life was really like. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific strip that uh, is actually still, uh, actually back in print, I think. Yeah, you can get hardback reprints yeah, of the yeah. whole thing now. Yeah. Uh, which again is great, and I'm trying to persuade libraries to stock it and things like that because, again, kids can learn about the the history of World War One mm -hmm. and the reality of life in the trenches. Now, you just mentioned to me uh, British Underground comics. Um, so, can you show me some examples and, and what characterizes them? Uh, well, I guess the only main example we ever put the most Emerson, yeah. Yeah, Hunt Emerson's work. I mean, British Undergrounds were just. I mean, I first encountered there used to be a place called Birmingham Arts Lab in the Midlands. I grew up near Birmingham, and so I was aware of that. Every now and again, I'd be in like some kind of like studenty shop. And I'd see these odd-looking comics and things, and they always seemed to have Hunt Emerson's work in. Mm -hmm. And you know, there wasn't—it wasn't like the, the, the same big countercultural thing that you had in the States, and there wasn't the big figures like Crumb and Shelter. I mean, Hunt essentially became Mister Underground Comics mm -hmm. in Britain for a while. Um, but I mean, you know, they were always just like there in the. the once we started to get comic shops, there'd always be the little spinner rack of black and white stuff, and imports from rip-off press and uh, yeah I mean you'd have thought that there could well have been censorship issues at that time but me and my brother were buying them you know I mean I was like 14 and he was 10 <laughs> and we were buying like you know Freak Brothers comics and I didn't really get all the drug references at that <laughs> time but I could kind of follow the gist <laughs> and uh, it did me no harm whatsoever <laughs> but uh, yeah you got Posey Simmons in a very, very different style to what she's famous for. Yes, absolutely. But she would do these occasional uh, things for the Saturday Guardian, Doc, Ask Dr. Derek, and just deliberately just have fun with, like, she 
grew up reading a lot, yeah, girl, British girls comics. And just every now and again, she likes to just have fun doing a pastiche. Mm -hmm. You know, for those who might not otherwise remember. Fantastic. Yeah, we do have a little bit of American stuff, don't we? Schultz original. Uh -huh. Just, I don't know, I worship it and weep. Yes, that's what one should do around the presence of Charles Schultz. Mm -hmm. And I, in a way, I kind of like it the way it's light Schultz because he's, he's got that tremor in the line. Yeah. Which at the time I thought, oh, he's just come from a bit of a wacky style. Only afterwards I found out, oh, yeah, he's got Parkinson's. Yeah. And so now he's handshakes. I was like, oh, God, that's terrible. It's terrible, but also the, the tremendous economy um, that he's able to bring to it um, is very strong. And actually, this really probably speaks to his condition very eloquently. Beautiful work. Yeah, and just the, the thing you know, that you wouldn't get from the books and which you always get the closer you look at the artist. You can see where it was penciled just a little too close to the the border. You had to then move Snoopy's head mm -hmm. back. And little stories, each that you know, pages of original art tell that mm -hmm. you'll never see in any of the printed work. That's what I love about it. Little late decisions made, or right? Mistakes corrected. Gary Trudeau just walked in with that one day, about two years ago. He was over. There was a, a, a big uh, reprint volume of his work just mm -hmm. came out, and he came to promote it in England. And he just walked in unannounced with two Doomsbury Sunday pages. Wow. And, uh, hello, would you like these? <laughs> uh -huh. What a nice guy. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he spent a bit of time here looking around. And, and then he was gone. And we were like, oh, yeah, I wish more people would do that. Yeah, we got very early Andy Cat when he was still a, just a, a single panel gag. I mean, fairly quickly on, it became a strip. But when it first began, it was just single, daily single panel gags. I see a uh, primetime Arnold Roth yes, piece. Yes, yeah, I mean, that is great. And especially in these, you know, turbulent times, that piece, I love showing that to kids. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, that is war, eventually. That's what happens. And, uh, yeah, and here's, your, here's where you get the real pokey old stuff. But again, it's like kids look at this and they go, oh, manga. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of line work, hatching and rendering. And the, you know, this thing going around the sun here. Mm -hmm. You'd see just the same kind of thing in a lot of manga these days. And some of it just looks, to me, still so contemporary. I mean, this, this doesn't, to me, look like something that was done over 100 years ago. Yeah, it looks a bit old and a bit wooden, but a bit, the level of detail. And yeah, there's an interesting thing you see in... Um comics from 1900 to about 1950 before the grid was set mm. um, where in the different traditions British Japan America the cartoonists coming to terms with well how does the grammar work mm. uh, last year I was at this exhibit in Tokyo of Tezuka and Ishinomori and Ishinomori had created a variety of comics that he would mail to other comic book artists of here are my experiments and one of the things that was very prominent is that the way Japanese sentences read is top to bottom, yeah. um, you know, uh, vertically. So the comics were done that way. And he would do, he did this uh, five-page story of a nine-panel grid. Um, this is a good example where basically he was playing with the reading order. So he would go here and then, you know, off-panel here. Somebody would throw a coconut at the character's head and he'd fall through. And, and basically it was a formal device to communicate with his peers about, well, wait, well, what if we handled the page in this way? Mm. Um, you know, and like in 1965, 66, he had done a manual 
for um, aspiring cartoonists. These are the things you need to know. Mm. And so, you know, just all of these disparate traditions coming up with, well, what are the rules of this thing? We know we have the page, we know we have the images, we know we have the words. How do they all fit together? And so seeing things like, you know, this circular construction, you know, I mean, it still obviously is left to right, top to bottom, mm. but, you know, it, it just shows a little bit more of how they were experimenting with what's possible, and that's fascinating. It is to me. I mean, there's a great book you, you might have seen called Art Out of Time. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, that, some of the stuff in there, you think, right, that's where Chris Ware nicked all these ideas yeah. from. Yeah, you that's know, right. It's, uh, it's, it's a great book. That's right. Uh, shall we see the uh, Young Room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not huge, which means we can only have small groups in at any one time. You don't want a huge amount of kids. Well, I mean, we've got 60 kids coming here on Thursday. Wow. So, I mean, what we do is we break them into separate groups and then uh -huh. break them again. So um, we'll have, I don't know, I'll have 15 kids in here for an hour. 15 kids will be in the galleries doing a little quiz questionnaire thing with the teacher. Then we'll swap them mm -hmm. and do another hour. Then hopefully I get about a half hour break and then we do the same again with another 30 kids. Um, but yeah, um, so anyway, this is where we teach the workshops, and we also have displays of work by young people, including um, the, every year there's the Young Cartoonists of the Year competition. And what we've all, the other thing we've got at the moment is this uh, Saving Tomorrow exhibition, which uh -huh. is the original art from your free graphic novel, sir. Dreams of a uh -huh. Low Carbon Future, which has been put together by um, scientists and, and people like that in Leeds University up north, oh, wow. working with professional cartoonists and with kid groups to produce this book, uh, which they, uh, you know, have given us thousands of free copies to give away. Oh, that's brilliant! And it's full of, you know, cartoon information about climate change and global warming and what can be done. And very put across, you know, it's quite complex and occasionally boring stuff in a very accessible yeah. form. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got boxes of them to give out to all visitors. We run workshops mm -hmm. in conjunction with it. We've offered to schools. They can come for free. And we'll do like a little... So the scientist guys have came down from Leeds. I mean, one of them is also a cartoonist who looks for 2000 AD. So that's mm -hmm. hence the thing. And so, the, you know, we, we did like a... You know, they did like half an hour talking about climate change and the illustrated examples. And then get them to design their own poster or cartoon or page. Mm -hmm. you know, about the issues. It, was, it went very well, so we're going to repeat it again there in the summer. Great. And it, that's been, yeah, been fun to do. And, you know. I guess, are there any kind of, um, you know, closing summation remarks uh, you'd like to make? Um, what, about the museum in general? Uh, about the museum, about um, what's exciting to you about uh, the creativity happening in Britain and comics right now? Well, what's most exciting to me about the creativity happening in comics now, and the fact that I get to visit schools and libraries and corrupt the minds of our nation's youth, is that there's more and more avenues, more than there ever were when I was growing up, for people to be able to get their work out and seen and understood. Uh, you know, printing has never been cheaper. People can print their own comics at home. Yeah. Uh, there's the, the, obviously the internet, there's you know, many, many websites and forums and blogs that people can utilise and use. So, you know, we're, we're living in such a rapidly expanding visual culture and I really like the fact that comics are still a part of that and I really like the fact that I can help some of the people some of the time realise their vision and at the same time realise one of mine which is keep comics going and you know, don't let them go the way of the cave painting.
I want to thank the Cartoon Museum and Page 45 for hosting uh, Charles Brownstein while he was in the UK. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to do what we do. You can always donate by going to cbldf.org and clicking the Donate banner. This podcast and all of our education programs are made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation and from listeners like you. My name is Alex Cox. I'm the producer and editor of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.